Hello, and welcome to Two Hearts, a new Who podcast. I am CJ. And I'm James, and this is the only podcast that once saved the universe with a big yellow truck. And every week here on Two Hearts, we take a look at another episode from the 2005 Doctor Who revival. And this week, we're looking at the very first full-blown appearance of the Cybermen in New Who, Rise of the Cybermen, and The Age of Steel. But firstly, how are you this week? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, How am I this week? Look, every week I give the same answer, which is like, I don't know, but I'm doing it. <laughs> and that's how I am this week. I'm, I'm simply alive. That's all I am aware of. COVID's still happening. Um, and yeah. How are you? How was how are you after my extremely nihilistic response? I would say equally nihilistic. I've been battered around a little bit this week, but that's fine. That comes with life, the ups, the downs, the highs, the lows, and then you have the facts of life, or so I'm told. Um, <laughs> but no, look, I'm fine. It, it is what it is. I've been looking forward to sitting down to have a chat about this episode because, you know, there's a lot to say and it's just, it's just nice to have uh, control over something. Hmm. Hmm. That's not uh, worrying at all, is it? <laughs> But no, we are here to talk about uh, Rise of the Cybermen and Age of Steel. Surprisingly, I have a lot to say. I didn't think I would because um, <clears throat> I think my assessment of this episode, when you hear it, will tell you everything you need to know about like how I feel about this episode, obviously. Um, but yeah, I have a, surprisingly a lot to say. Uh, but first of all, we should touch on some Doctor Who new I- news items. Um, did you want to kick us off, James? Yeah, I would love to. I, I think the the crucial headline that kind of popped up in Who News over the past couple of weeks has been that uh, COVID delays uh, seem to be having a pretty profound impact on the production of Series 13, which has led to this, uh, I guess, mildly substantiated rumour that um, it doesn't look like we're going to be getting a new season until 2022 uh, because the production of each episode is apparently taking twice as long now, which is quite the delay. Yeah, um, it is. And if I suppose... It's, it is much longer, like, empirically because of the fact that we got season 12, like, at the very, very first week of 2020. Um, but, I mean, season 11 was 2018, season 12, 2020, so it would not be out of the blue that it wouldn't be till 2022. And it certainly makes sense considering, obviously, with the pandemic happening, how restrictions have impacted uh, film sets and uh, production crews. Um I am okay with this delay, if I'm to be perfectly honest. I think it will give the show a lot of time to, like, really think about what they want to do. Look, that's a, that's a fundamentally generous uh, reading on it, and I, I don't entirely disagree because, um, yeah, like, I think it's no secret that between the two of us there are a lot of thoughts and feelings on where Season 12 left us with the show. Um, <clears throat> and it would certainly be interesting to see how Chibnall absorbs the feedback to series 12 because if you look at you know season 11 to series 12 like 
he clearly listened to, to what people were were saying and sort of projecting. Um, so yeah, it, it's definitely going to be interesting to see what happens with thirteen. Um, what I find most interesting about this whole thing, though, is that it it seems like they are teeing up that this is going to be uh, Jodie Whittaker and Mandip Gill in the TARDIS. Um, there was a, a recent Comic-Con panel where it was only the two of them appearing to talk about Doctor Who or Comic-Con or, I don't know, one of those nerd conventions. Um, but it was just the two of them. And I think I'm very much on board with the concept of just Yaz and the Doctor because I think Yaz deserves some time to shine now that um, Graham and Ryan have sort of completed their arcs. Mm, mm. Um, I uh, fundamentally agree. I also... <laughs> <laughs> I also think that um, uh, it just being Mandip and uh, Jody in the TARDIS will be a fantastic pairing, and I've always said how much I enjoy the pair of them and entire the entire cast as well. Like I do enjoy all of their performances and uh, them as actors. Um, I do think that Bradley Walsh though was present at that um panel though. So I don't know if that is exactly substantiative proof. I suppose that's true. I mean, I, I don't entirely know. I don't follow these things really outside of like us frantically Googling Doctor Who news before we sit down to record. Um, but look, I I guess maybe just call it some wishful thinking on my part then, because I think having two women at the helm of the show um, would be a very unique and fun thing to do at this point and uh yeah i just hope that they they sort of run with that the other thing that's popped up in who news is this very interesting fan poll that's been run by the guardian it seems to have collected over fifty thousand votes um and has essentially uh ranked the doctor's popularity over classic to new who um and do, do you want to you want to talk about number one through three i would love nothing more than to talk about numbers one through three uh, so, well, to no one's uh, a surprise, um, David Tennant comes out on top with 21% of the vote. Um, interestingly, though, Jodie Whittaker, our incumbent doctor who's been subject to a lot of criticism, um, is also is number two um, and is like just, sh- just shy of that uh, number one spot as well by like a few, I think maybe just under 100 votes, I think, which is so incredible. But also not, I suppose, I suppose, unsurprising considering she is still the present Doctor. Um, but what is more interesting than that, and I think like you, James, will have much more to talk about on this than I do, is Peter Capaldi is number three. And I was like, oh, Peter, I thought nobody liked you. People like you. This is great. <laughs> um, I do think that what we've seen recently is a bit of a... Um... I mean, what I would dub as the Clarissance, uh, a bit of a renaissance for Clara as a companion, I think has also produced a bit more of an appreciation for Peter Capaldi's run on the show as people have gotten further away from the kind of exhaustion that they had with Moffat at the time and maybe given it more of a go on its own terms. I do think people are uh, um, maybe fundamentally enjoying it a bit more now, which is, uh, I mean, I'm obviously all for. And yeah, Jodie Whittaker's placement is really interesting because I think that for a lot of, you know, uh, let's say 
slightly older millennial white dudes who love Doctor Who. Um, I think maybe we do often forget that she is resonating quite deeply with um, an entirely new form of fan base, the same way that we were when David Tennant or whoever was sort of resonating with us. Um, and so you've got all these like fucking amazing kids now who are on Twitter and Tumblr and everything. And Jodie is, is sort of their doctor. And I think that is just really kind of wonderful. And if anything, it's making me, in retrospect, reconsider a lot of the thoughts that I had about Jodie Whittaker's performance, especially with how much we've been struggling with David Tennant's performance so far in season two. Um, I've started watching clips of Jodie Whittaker and I've been like, you know what, I think it's time for me to give this just a a fresh go. Um, And I'm definitely looking forward to us uh, revisiting series 12 before before the end of the uh, Christmas special. Um, yeah, definitely. And you raise an interesting point because, yeah, I think we've both noted and as the world has noted, David Tennant and Jodie Whittaker both have very similar kind of performance styles. Um, and so even if we don't necessarily agree with it or even if we think that the writing of their series don't uh, support their performances, um, obviously it is that charm and likability that shines through when it comes to popularity and what people want to watch, you know, week in, week out. Sometimes people don't want to watch a grumpy Scotsman. Sometimes they don't want to watch a man child with floppy hair. Um, sometimes they don't. I'm going to stop there. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, it's an interesting poll. Obviously, everything should be taken with a grain of salt. Um, Tumblr and Twitter, obviously, things that influence these kinds of polls when it comes to fandom. Um, but yes, it is an interesting result nonetheless. Um, there is one other piece of news just a tiny piece of news the emmys happened happened recently um and which doctor who was uh, nominated in and it won nothing so that's great is is what it is is what it is i'll tell you what did win a bunch of emmys shit's creek uh swept the comedy category you should absolutely go and watch it it's positive it's super queer it's everything that cj and i both love um watch shit's creek that's our doctor who podcast recommendation (laughs) for the week (laughs) <laughs> what shit's creek at 9 a.m on 9 p.m on atv or something like that i don't know i'm bad at doing ads and we're not promoting shit's creek at all because this is a doctor who podcast where we get to talk about whatever we want <laughs> because it's our doctor who podcast <laughs> and not yours uh, okay let's let's get into it uh again we're recording this on another tuesday night because the weekend didn't work out and as we know from our last tuesday night recording these always go really really well um so <laughs> let's dive right in with rise of the cybermen and the age of steel so this is london an alternative to our world where everything's the same but a little bit different we're in some sort of known place all those people disappearing off the streets it's been going on for months. What are they all doing? It's the earpieces. The prototype was passed every test, sir. It's working. I've seen them before. What are they? Skin of metal and a body that will never age. Slivers. So, episodes five and six of season two are Rise of the Cybermen and The Age of Steel. It's two-parter. Directed by Graham Harper and written by Tom McRae. Now, it's interesting because Graham Harper, uh, you just found this out today, James. Um, Graham Harper is the only director to date that has worked on both the classic series and the modern series. Um, And I think, honestly, um, a brilliant choice. And Graham Harper is definitely a stalwart director for the Uh, rest of the Russell T era, especially. Um, But we'll get to that in a minute. Let's take a look at IMDb. 
And this week, they have written down for these episodes. <clears throat> the TARDIS crash lands in London on a parallel world where Rose's dad is still alive. People are disappearing off the streets and one of the Doctor's deadliest enemies is about to be reborn. Fair enough. I cannot argue with that. In fact, i got to say, IMDb, you've been getting it right every week this season and I'm with you. I'm with you 100%. Can the second part be just as good? The Cybermen take control of London as the population is enslaved and the Doctor and his friends become fugitives. Again, can't can't disagree with that. But we have a much longer and unwieldy uh, plots description to give you. So here we go with our plot description of this episode. Um, <clears throat> when the TARDIS crashes through a crack in time and space, it lands in an alternate reality London. Here, late-stage capitalism has caused a massive divide between the haves and the have-nots, leading to increased military presence in the streets and the elite flying overhead in zeppelins. The crew discover that Rose's dad, Pete, is still very much alive in this dimension and working for the mega corporation, Cybus Industries. Cybus effectively controls everything through the use of earbuds that almost every person wears. Think mobile phones directly tapped into your brain. While the Doctor and Rose investigate Pete's alternate wealthy life, <laughs> Mickey learns that his grandmother is also alive and that his lower economic status has caused him to become a freedom fighter going by the name of Ricky. Cybus, under the leadership of the brilliant but kind of insane John Lumick, is looking to artificially extend the human lifespan by transferring brains into metal exoskeletons, an experiment which is rejected by world leaders across the world. During a birthday celebration for alt-reality uh, alt Jackie, Lumic orders the new Cybermen army to strike, killing the president of London, sure, and sending the, the city into chaos. Action ensues, and in the process, Ricky is killed, causing Mickey to have an existential awakening about his own potential. The crew, assisted by the Freedom Fighters, break into Lumic's factory and shut down the satellite controlling London citizens, setting them free and causing the Cybermen to go insane with self-realisation in the process. Lumic dies! The war against the Cybermen can begins across the globe as Mickey chooses to stay in the alternate reality and pick up where Ricky left off, finally realising there is no place for him on board the TARDIS. Wow. You wrote that, James, so thanks for that. It's a lot. It is a lot. What do we think? Let's. What do we think? What are we thinking? What are we? What are we thinking? Well, first of all, I'm. Uh, when you started reading that in an exaggerated voice, I was like, "Has he seen how long this is going to go?" Because it's like <laughs> half a page. Um, so I guess props for maintaining that level of voice the entire time. Um. Okay. So, Rise of the Cybermen and Age of Steel are. Uh, I guess maybe our favorite kind of episodes to talk about because there is a lot of ambition here. Um, there is a lot of an attempt at something here, but it does kind of falter in its execution because it is really weighed down by everything that it's trying to do. Um, and so it ends up being this kind of like enjoyable ride while you're actually watching it and then the more thought you put into it the more it's just filled with these like just really bizarre bits of writing really bizarre bits of writing that's that's pretty <laughs> australian for you um yeah how do you feel about the two-parter well um 
I would almost push back on the idea that it like falters in the execution because actually I think this is one of the best looking episodes we've had in a long time. And as I said to you before, um, I think that this is an, a classic example of style over substance. Um, this is a two-parter that I think looks amazing, sounds amazing, um, has really likable performances in it. Um, your old, the old gang's back together almost except for Jackie cause she gets cybernized. Um, and I think that, yeah, like, like you say, there is a lot to like here on a purely mind numbing way. <laughs> but, uh, if you look at the writing, if you look at the, 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 the stuff that's going on underneath, I don't think a lot of it does hold together. Um, as to why that is, I, I, I couldn't say. Um, I know that Russell T probably ha- uh, had a lot more influence on these two stories than um, the writer's credit would uh, would make you think. Um, and so maybe it was just like a, a case of uh, a bad editing job on these scripts. Um, because I think that like there is some nice world building going on here and some it goes some way to kind of explain and make sense of the plot. But then there's, it, it almost feels like it's being pulled in two different directions sometimes. So yeah, I think looks great writing. Eh, um, yeah. And that's the show. Uh, C plus. See you next week. No. Um, okay. <laughs> so let's, I, um, okay. I guess let's start with the, the top layer of all of this um because you and i have differing opinions on how successful a cyberman story this is uh do you want to maybe um i guess like let's let's start with like how do you feel about the cybermen in general we haven't really had much of a chance to talk about them yet no you're you're right and i i did notice that we didn't really talk about them much in our notes um hmm so the cybermen are for my money almost better than the Daleks. And um, I don't remember what video or I was watching a video about these two episodes and somebody made the point that whilst we, if we look at the Daleks and the Cybermen as like the two main big villains that Doctor Who fans have picked up on and that keep coming back. um, One represents the past Daleks, Nazism, fascism, the things that we have, the horrors we have endured in the past and one is future facing and it's always trying to be prescient and thinking about future concerns like body transmogrification, um, technology run rampant, uh, capitalism, as you've noted in your plot description, etc. I think that's a really interesting way to think about these two concepts because obviously one has been more successful, shall we say, across the years than the other one. And it's not uncommon for science fiction stories that attempt to extrapolate our lived experience and things that we have lived through far better than, uh, I guess, future concerns. And so the Daleks have such a clear and cut identity to them. Um, And that's why so many Dalek stories have been very, very successful because like they know what they're about. The Cybermen have not been as consistent. They are subject to like a pretty much a hack job when it comes to their um, internal continuity in history. Um, They never look the same twice. They're always changing their appearance and upgrading their appearance. If, apart from like a few quintessential things, like the little teardrop on the eye and the handlebars, um, they have gone through like a myriad of redesigns, including one most recently that makes them look like Iron Man, which I'm not very happy about. But whatever. Um, and so I think that you, it's it, it's harder to kind of 
critique or think about the Cybermen as villains because like they are just so inconsistent and so ill thought out in respect to the what what the underlying like uh concept of them is because i think so often it's forgotten that there's humans in there that the idea behind the cybermen is that they were once human and uh decided to decided to replace their body parts from fear of death fear of illness fear of whatever and so often more often than not that just gets forgotten um and they become generic marauding robots um so what I think I like most about the Cybermen in this story is that it doesn't ever let you forget that essential body horror element to it. Whether or not it actually gets right, the society from which these Cybermen came from is another question. But I think the, the depiction of the reality of being a Cyberman and the way that they are shown and shot um, and designed, I think is very, very successful in these episodes. I just ranted. On you go, James. <laughs> Um, yeah, look, I mean, okay. Hmm. Okay. I don't want to be adversarial off the bat. Um, but I do, I don't get a body horror from this, uh, particular story at all. Um, I think there is a, a couple of flashes of like existential horror towards the, the very end, sort of when a couple, like the Cybermen have the, uh, emotional inhibitor chip blown up and whatnot. Um, but I think for the most part, having having them be so, to your point, so Iron Man-like in the, in the way that they're presented. Um, like, here's the thing. In a vacuum, I kind of really adore the design that they went with for the modern Cyberman, the big fucking clanky beast of a robot, right? I'm into that as a concept. Um, but I do think that uh, in doing so, you move, like you are very, very far from the Mondas origins at this point. And even from the um, sort of the, well, the 1980s Cybermen, which were still very much like kind of, they felt like human bodies just in, you know, in, in silver jumpsuits or whatever. Um, but now with them being uh, essentially just evil marauding robots um you're right you lose the underlying ideology you lose the emotion behind them like um there's only one or two scenes that really effectively convey um again the existential horror of a cyberman in this episode uh in these episodes but i don't get the body stuff because it does just reduce them down to like hey we're gonna force people into a meat grinder as opposed to these people are so desperate they've been pushed into upgrading themselves into monsters um and that is a really good place to start with a story. And I think one of the biggest criticisms that a lot of people have of this two-parter is that it does such a terrible job of establishing what the world is like, even though it hints at things like massive wealth disparity, uh, late-stage capitalism problems, uh, pollution, a sick world, uh, increased military. Like There are all these little threads that it never does anything with. And so by the end there is no reason for people to want to be upgraded to Cybermen. So they have to resort to just, oh, well, uh, a big evil man is going to force people to convert into uh, Cybermen. And I mean, yeah, like that's a take on the Cyberman story. Um, I'm not saying it's it's wrong. It's just for me, I don't feel anything for it. Um, yeah, I think that that's a, a very valid criticism, what you're saying, um, especially because, as I said before, like obviously this episode is trying to pull in two different directions and it wants to do a kind of dystopic universe world where the reality is that it's so awful that there is no choice but to be a Cyberman. Um, 
but it, it really doesn't go nearly any, it like, doesn't even go hard into that at all. Like it's all, it it's hinted at so much so that it's like, like subtle. Um, and the other problem is that of course it also, it wants to tell that story sort of, but it also wants to tell this other story about how this parallel earth is exactly the same as our earth and all they want is upgrades and all they want is the newest technology and their mindless, brainless cattle. And so it's like trying to do a commentary on our world, but also trying to be off and weird and, and distant from our world. And it can't, it can't do both. It can't, it just can't do both. And so that's when I think you get into a lot of the script issues with this episode is it's just like a confused kind of uh, moral, maybe not moral, but just like a confused identity about what it's trying to say with these Cybermen. And I think it's clear that like the Cybermen in these episodes are slightly upgraded to move away from the 60s kind of horror of body uh, part replacement. Um, and they've rejiggered themselves for um, a modern audience by making this horror behind the Cybermen, the idea that y- you you would become the newest upgrade, like your phone or like your car or whatever. You become the next upgrade, um, which is a hokey idea. And I think it's a hokey idea then, and it's a hokey idea now. Um, but when I say body horror, I guess I mean more so just, it doesn't ever let you forget the fact that there are humans inside of the Cybermen. And for the majority of Cybermen stories, that's never been the case. So I think on that front, it is a success. I guess so. I think that Modern Who has a, a problem with depicting a human inside the suit um, because, like, you know, in, in this episode, when they take off that front panel of the, um, the, the young woman that they find in cold storage, um, it's like that sort of, like, white, uh, almost like the androids from Alien kind of in, internal um, flesh and whatnot. And so, like, I, I get that they can't do the whole blood thing and whatnot, but at the same time, you know, just last week we had that amazing shot of like the human heart inside that metal encasing. And so it's like, why can't we do elements like that inside a Cyberman suit so that it really does feel like this is still fundamentally like a human ecosystem that's just been completely taken over by this metal shell on the outside. Um, and I think if they had gone in that direction um, instead of the like the android kind of direction, I would have resonated a bit more with the the body stuff um the other side of the body horror coin is that um so in uh and look i look i reference moffat episodes a lot i'm sorry it's just it's my bag baby uh in world enough in time when bill is trapped in the mondasian spaceship hospital thing um there is specifically it's a hospital it is designed uh as if these people are going through an ongoing medical treatment when they get turned into cybermen it's specifically done as a surgery like she is knocked out for it it is there are a lot of elements there about loss of autonomy and and loss of self through the physical form um whereas in uh age of seal and whatnot it is you get that kind of like cartoonish ongoing sequence of, oh, it's like a big robot with many arms that's got like scissor hands and stuff that just chops people up into pieces. And it just doesn't feel, I mean, granted the CGI hasn't aged particularly well, but like we tend to not try to hold that against the shows that we review from the past. I, oh, I don't like to anyway. And so it's not so much that the CGI doesn't look good. It's that like there is no sense of 
the person in that sequence. You just get the shot of the the things spinning around and being all chop, 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 and you get some screams and whatnot. But it's it's cartoonish as opposed to weighty. And so because of that, there is a disconnect for me between the human and the Cyberman until the emotional inhibitor breaks when you get a couple of scenes that really perfectly highlight that that connection is still there. But that doesn't happen until, like, the the final act of this story. And so as a Cyberman story, I just find it very lacking because I don't feel anything. <laughs> um, I think the World Duff and Time comparison... I think that what they did in World Enough in Time is actually more horrific and not in a good way. I think it does veer uncomfortably close to something that would be almost traumatic, I think, for kids watching. And I think that that, this episode firmly has kids and a younger audience in mind when it's trying to convey these ideas without traumatizing a generation. Um, And I think it does it remarkably well. and the scissor hand stuff, like yeah, it, it's hokey, but um, you also get that great shot of the the helmet coming down. And it's like lit from within with red, and it just looks demonic. And I guess that's the other thing I also quite like about this episode is just like that they the design. I I really like the design of these Cybermen. I I, I think that they probably are the best, maybe. Ooh. Um, just in terms of like the fact that they really understand that these uh, have to be physical metal creations uh, which the 80s just did not acknowledge at all Um, I like how imposing they are, I like how well this episode shows or uh, um, does the idea that there are Cybermen just like all over the city and we get such fantastic shots of them just like marching, like endlessly marching and they're physically there it's not like a CGI creation with the Daleks in the sky, it's like you get, yeah, I just, you get the idea that there's like Cybermen everywhere in London and you can't escape them no matter what. Um, I think there's some really good work going on here from Graham Harper to like make them imposing and um, uh, threatening. But I guess, yes, um, look, I, I my criticism uh, my and my assessment of these episodes comes from knowing where Cybermen stories have been up to this point in time, which was 2006. And it's a successful episode because it, it realizes that there's humans underneath them. And also I can't think of any other episode apart from World Enough in Time that also acknowledges that post this episode as well, with maybe the exception of the Ascension of the Cybermen, um, which is also an episode with Cybermen design that I really quite like. Um, a couple of, okay, so one interesting point, um, the concept of the Cyberman mask coming down and bathed in red and sort of that kind of mask descending on what is no longer fundamentally like a very human form is actually a reference to Revenge of the Sith in which uh, Darth Vader's helmet comes down and he has the red eyes. And um, I thought that was cute. I thought that was quite nice. My world's colliding like that. Um, but outside of that, outside of me bringing up Star Wars unnecessarily, um, I think the other thing about the Cybermen in this episode, and you hinted at this in, in something that you said earlier, but the it's not just the body horror or the physicality of the Cybermen, because, yeah, physically they are very imposing in this episode, and yet yeah, the direction does a really good job of, like, shooting them in such a way that they feel like a very threatening presence. Um, but there's also the flip side, which is the ideology of, of a Cyberman. Mm. And having Lumic represent the creative sort of like God being behind the Cyberman as a, what is like very obviously a direct answer to Davros in um, the Daleks Genesis. 
is um you do that ideology gets very very muddled and lost because lumic is such a cartoonish villain um who seems to he okay so lumic is dying and he wants to extend his own life right and i think that's that's a really good place to start with this concept um the problem that i have with lumic and in turn the ideology of this episode after that is that he goes immediately from that to i will forcibly upgrade every single human alive into a cyberman form and i'll be last um and so i don't get the impression that like what for me is so like sort of wonderfully melancholic and creepy about the cybermen is that they believe they are helping like they they believe that what they are doing is fundamentally sparing somebody from pain um and i think if you muddy those waters with uh quite literally like a mustache twirling cartoon villain who just wants to like fuck with people it seems like um i i think you do lose something that makes them um special in that way and in turn i think that's a problem a lot of people have with uh nightmare and silver which is a really cool episode about robots but it's a terrible episode about cybermen (laughs) (laughs) you're right um and i think you're also right lumic his motivation is definitely confused in this episode um i do like the idea that the cybermen have been programmed to like upgrade humanity and so obviously they would think that they're doing them a favor. Um, and like, this is what, one of the aspects that I really quite like about Cybermen and like ideas of technology consuming humans uh, uh, quite interesting is like, we impose this idea that they are horrific onto them because of the way that they look, but they are just functioning with a computer brain. And in this story, because they've had all their emotions turned off, um, they're just functioning with a computer brain and like a prime directive almost. It's entirely logical to them that they that they would be doing that, and that's also why they're so scary. Is because you can't stop them; they are just going to ceaselessly come at you with this desire to turn you into them, with no regard for actually like logic in a way and motivation. It's just relentless. Uh yeah. No, I, I pick up what you're putting down. Um, I yeah, and um, it's just it. Again, my favorite word when I talk about Russell T. Davies's era is that I just find it a little bit frustrating. That's all, because um, all of those elements are technically there. Um, the pieces are on the board, but they're just not quite being played um, in a successful way this time. Um, and yeah, like Lumic is a problem with that. The world building is a problem with that. Um, the Cybermen themselves are at least mostly successful. Um, uh, the, the sort of stuff that we've been sort of touching on during this uh, little Cyberman conversation here, when the uh, emotional inhibitor chips get turned off, there's some really fantastic scenes of like, uh, there's a Cyberman that looks at itself uh, in, the, in a reflection and starts like screaming. And it is one of the most disturbing Cyberman like moments I've ever seen in, in the entirety of Doctor Who. Uh, and it just hints at a, a sort of better emotional story that I think, that I think could have um, happened here. Um, yeah. It just, I don't know, man. I, it could have been so much more than robots go boom, I think is what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that 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 scene of the Cyberman looking in the mirror and realizing itself is well worth it. It's a really good moment. 
the other obviously good moment is um, the scene in which the doctor and um, Angela Price, uh, I think her, her name is Helen or something. Um, the, in the, They've come out of this um, cold storage tunnels and they discover the Cybermen and the, um, they knock it down and then take out the emotional inhibitor and the Cybermen starts talking to them and saying, um, my name's Sally, Sally Phelan, and it's supposed to be my wedding day and where's my husband and why do I feel cold? And you're like, oh, there's a human in there. Um, it Again, it's just another really nice way of illustrating the reality of being a Cyberman. But I guess I do... <clears throat> I do have a problem with this epi- with these episodes in particular because maybe I wouldn't have such a problem with these episodes if we hadn't like um, as a from a thematic point from a writing point if we hadn't had the brilliant Dalek story right which like reintroduced not only reintroduced the Daleks but also reintroduced them with a fantastic like exploration of their psychology of the the nature of being a Dalek and the nature of the Doctor as well. Like, it really understood the those two impeccably. And because that was its intention, right? But the intention of these two episodes isn't introspection and it isn't psychology and it isn't any of these things that you and I might find interesting as viewers. These stories are, in, like, so, like, emphatically written and produced to be action thrillers. And they're not going for any, I believe, deep philosophical thought about what the Cybermen are and what it actually is to be a Cyberman. Um, and I guess I, in the end, that's not the episode's fault because that's not also, it's not what it's trying to do. Um, but then also what it is trying to do is muddled at points as well. So you have to sort <laughs> of say, well, it's not entirely successful then on that front. But it isn't trying to go for a Dalek thing. It's It's much more movie action thriller as opposed to um dalek which is in a category of its own (laughs) yeah well dalek is basically a character study for a a tin thing on wheels which is an, an amazing magic trick that they managed to pull off um and yeah, obviously you and I, I think, would have vastly preferred the same sort of treatment being done with the Cybermen here. Um, and I would argue that this probably kicks off a pretty nasty trend when it comes to the Cybermen in terms of just reducing them down to the kind of like B-tier action equivalent of a Dalek, um, which I think as the past sort of like, you know, half an hour discussion about the ideology and the body horror stuff, like there is so much more that you can do with a Cyberman. Um, and it just, yeah, profoundly bums me out that like, this is the establishing tone for them in New Who, because it really doesn't shake it off until the very end of Peter Capaldi's run, which is a huge amount of time. Um, so that, that's, that's obviously not, not ideal. And yeah, to your point, if you are to take this for what it is trying to be, which is again, a, a B tier action film, um, it doesn't successfully do that though either because it still concerns itself with elements like, uh, like the class divide and whatnot. And so it's not dumb enough to be dumb fun and it's not smart enough to be engaging. (laughs) And so it just ends up in this kind of like awkward middling area where you're like, yeah, I mean, I just watched a couple of episodes of Doctor Who and you turn it off and you move on with your life. Um, 
And those episodes absolutely have a place in things, don't get me wrong. But again, because it is the reintroduction of an iconic villain, you do come into this with a lot of expectations about what it's going to give you. And that it fails to give you anything of substance in either of the, re- the directions it tries to run in. Um, you do end up just kind of like, it, it just it just leaves your mind the, the moment you're done with it. Um, which, you know, isn't ideal. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I think, I think that all in all, Cybermen, uh, they, the Cybermen are reintroduced here and it does get across the point of them successfully, even if we don't necessarily think that the story itself is necessarily up to scratch. Um, should we pivot slightly to discussion of, of, of the characters that we've just uh, said this episode is really bad at dealing with? <laughs> um yes well it's really interesting because like you just said about how dalek taught us so much about the doctor's character as well as reintroducing the um sort of the the classic villain thing and it did get me thinking about like does this episode teach us anything about the doctor um i don't think it does no i don't um i don't think the season in general is very good at at (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> showing a, a new or interesting facet of the doctor um but yeah i think the doctor is like a largely a, a kind of nothing kind of entity in these episodes david Tennant gets a couple of nice lines that he delivers really quite nicely and you do see you do see I, the reason why he is such a successful doctor shine through in moments but um there's still i'm still remain unconvinced I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Doctor Who universe. Uh, you know, I, I agree. And it's the same thing that I was dealing with uh, during Girl in the Fireplace, where um, the quiet moments that he gets, where the script allows him to just be that kind of, like, effortless, everyman, almost, kind of, like, very smooth vibe that he that, he, that David Tennant can pull off. He excels in those moments. You know, he has little conversations with with Mickey where he sits down and he folds his arms and then Mickey sits down and folds his arms next to him and you just get that kind of like very organic camaraderie going on between the two of them. Uh, there's a scene where they are fleeing from the birthday attack and they're, they're all sitting in the back of a van and the Doctor is just like very casually like, oh, I'm the Doctor, by the way, if anyone cares. Or when he's not expected to play it big... Um, I think he is the doctor. And then the moment that the script requires him to yell a lot, which is for some reason, the direction they decided to take David Tennant's doctor in, um, I lose him more and more because I just don't think his acting at this point in his career is, is up to where it needs to be to pull off those scenes. Um, and yeah, in terms of the character writing for the Doctor in this episode, he is just a non-entity to the story. The story happens to him. Uh, the whole concept of the fact that he's dealt with Cybermen before is not particularly explored all that well. It's just kind of, hmm. he has that really great moment where he's like, oh, it's all happening again. Like, I, I'm a sucker for any sci-fi story that says it's all happening again because I love the idea of cyclical evil. Um, but again it's just a line it's not a, a, an idea that the story explores what? or a, a thesis statement or anything if i if i could sorry um if i could just like interject slightly um that line is actually i think very very successful because of what it says about the concept of the cyberman and this idea that the cyberman can happen 
as a concept on any planet, any time, given the right circumstances. And that's another successful, and I'm sorry, I know we've, we've already talked about the Cybermen, but that's also another uh, reason why I like them so much and why I think that they might be better conceptually as villains than necessarily than the Daleks are um, because of that whole idea that they aren't, they aren't <clears throat> necessarily uh, concerned with racial purity or anything of that nature. Um, they are con- they're a concept and anyone, like I just said, with given the right circumstances, could develop a society that would need Cybermen. Um, that's my thought on as you were. But the society doesn't need Cybermen. Well, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, it, it, and that's the problem with the writing, right? Is like it, it's um, it, it yeah, it comes up to that to that idea that this <laughs> is a, like a, a dystopia. And then it's like, oh, no, not today. No, no, no. <laughs> exactly. Like, if they'd shown up in this alternate London um, and it had been genuinely dystopian, there had been sick people everywhere, increased military and whatnot, and if there had been, like, hints of the Doctor looking around, but, like, I've seen things like this before, they never end well, and it builds up to the reveal of this is another Cyberman origin story, then I think you'd have much more of a, a sort of an argument for, for what you're saying here. But because it's all intercut with, like, scenes of just regular people going about their day and going to work and driving cars and London is clean and, and pretty, and it just... It, because it doesn't feel like a world that needs Cybermen, it doesn't feel like a story that needs Cybermen. Um, and so, again, like I said, like, the plot just happens. It doesn't necessarily, like, the Doctor and Rose uh, go off and investigate uh, Pete's new life, and they just stumble into the, the rise of the Cybermen. There's no, do you know what I mean? Like, there's no connective tissue. There, there's no reason for any of this to sort of be uh, occurring. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> um you're absolutely right no. yeah <laughs> that's all i have to say i don't know i don't know it just, yeah like uh it's i it's weird because like emotionally i'm not even as down on this episode as i sound like no, these are much more intellectual complaints um i don't hate watching it like i i think it's a fun two hours of, of your life mm. uh it's just that you know, I feel like here on Two Hearts, we specifically are trying to actively sort of pull apart the show and figure mm. out what works and what doesn't and why. Uh, and so when you look at something like this two-parter and you, again, like my, my favorite saying here is when the pieces are on the board, but they're not played right, I get very, very frustrated. <laughs> um, and there are a lot of pieces on the board here. Um even outside of the Doctor and the Cybermen, there's a lot of stuff that this episode does with the alternate reality with Rose and with Mickey that mm. is a mixed bag, let's say. Um, <clears throat> you're right. Um, it, it is interesting. Uh, yeah, we do often forget that this is also a parallel universe story. Um, and parallel universes in Doctor Who are, like, are rare um, because... I guess with like Doctor Who and its concept of like all of time and space being available to you, parallel universes must seem like a kind of quaint notion because you could go to another planet and say it's a parallel universe in a lot of ways. Um, um, and it's funny because like, I feel like Doctor Who is like almost more concerned with like alternative timelines, which we've seen more recently in like Orphan 55, which 
seems to suggest that like minor choices here and there can shift the universe onto an entirely different track, but like um, alternatives all seem to coexist and the doctor's free to jump across them all, which is interesting. Um, and something we can get to later. Um, but obviously this is like emphatically a parallel universe. And what are the, one of the like interesting things about a parallel universe story is that you get to see all your ordinary, the people, you know, the characters, you know, and love acting weirdly. What's annoying about this story is that we get a parallel Jackie and Pete who are just Jackie and Pete, but they're rich. And we get a Mickey. I think Mickey's alternate um, person is actually uh, he. I think Noel Clark is a good performance, and I think it's an interesting idea that this is a Mickey who um, has just become harder because the situation has been harder, but it's still the same person you can see underneath. Um, but yeah, Jackie and Pete are just like they're just Jackie and Pete. I don't get it. Jackie's just a just vain a vain bitch and i don't like how they what they do that to her <laughs> so outside of the cyberman stuff uh this also takes the opportunity to tell a very companion focused uh narrative in a lot of ways um with rose uh with rose it rings really quite hollow because um having seen all of season two, right, you understand that what they're doing here is setting up the mechanics of the finale. Um, and so because of that, you kind of have to put out of your mind that, you know, they get there, she realizes that her dad is alive in this alternate universe. And the entire thing just like smacks of this really cheap father's day, uh, sort of, um, redux where we have to go through this entire character arc with Rose again of her needing to sort of, you know, quote unquote, accept the information that like this man is her father, but it's not her father. You know, it can't be her father. Um, and it's frustrating as a viewer to watch Rose need to be told this again by the doctor, because while there is an emotional reality that you can relate to with Rose wanting to sort of go and check out what her parents would have been like if they'd been successful and had stayed alive together, um, that makes sense to me. But what doesn't make sense to me is that you need to have multiple scenes where it's like, oh, Rose, remember, he's not your actual father. And then she meets up with Pete and they have that same Father's Day thing of that innate connection that just kicks in automatically and he trusts her and yet again she has a bad connection with her mother who rejects her and is quite cruel to her and so i just wonder like you're not saying anything new about rose here it's strictly plot convenient stuff that you're setting up for this frankly wild choice that you're about to make in the finale and i can't wait to get to that um and yeah and to your point about jackie it's just fundamentally not kind to her again. It's another reality that Rose steps into, like with the Father's Day time travel stuff, where we don't see Jackie in her best light even remotely. Uh, Jackie and Pete aren't happy together. Like they're on the, they're, they are in the process of separating despite the fact that they're successful, which is interesting because in Father's Day, it presents that as this like, oh, well, if he had just been successful, their marriage would have seemingly been okay because it was the money woes that were the problem. And now that we see that it's, it's not even the money woes that they might just be fundamentally incompatible people. Mm. And again, I'm, I'm right up against that finale choice that we're not going to talk about just yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that this episode, this story, um, it, it kind of makes the, the case that like all these universes have all these different iterations of this family, but none of them have got it right because there's, the uh, because they don't have Rose in this universe. Um, 
And I kind of wish that it hadn't said that because a far more interesting story would be this one, which as you're right, like, and this, it, this episode just, just end up repeating a lot of the same beats as um, Father's Day. Um, and not very interestingly, I might add. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it kind of just implies that Pete and Jackie are not right for each other. Um, which when mm. we get to the ending will be very interesting, won't it? <laughs> <laughs> it will be, it will be quite interesting. Um, and the flip side of this, and another reason why the, the Father's Day retread stuff is so frustrating is because you've got this two-parter serving as Mickey's uh, actualization story, and yet it chooses to dedicate so much more time to the Pete stuff again, as opposed to focusing a story on Mickey in its entirety, which would have been nice at the end of his run because you don't, we don't have enough development with Mickey to sort of have the emotional gravity that um, the ending scene deserves because it's so well-written and, and well-performed when they do finally part ways. But it's referring to a, a dynamic um, and a relationship that we've only seen glimpses at, and they're not very well-rounded glimpses. Um, and so to take this opportunity to tell a story about Mickey and then just tell a watered down version of the same story you've told about Rose before is very frustrating because Noel Clark deserves better than that. Mickey deserves better than that, especially as a person of color um, deserves better than that. There's just so many annoyances surrounding this uh, alternate reality companion stuff. Um, because yeah, to your point, Ricky in this reality um, is a very interesting concept. Hmm. Yeah, he is. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of like a clever way to seg to this, but I can't, so I'm just going to say it. Um, Naked Mickey is hot. <laughs> a better way to have segued to that would have been to explain why you're bringing up a Naked Mickey. But, uh, sure. <laughs> it is hot. I just wanted to say it because it's so obvious. The scene. Okay. Because I'm two hearts, I don't think we talk about the fact that we're like queer and gay enough um but uh, um oh we're about to get to that we're about to get to it we're about to get to it um what i love so okay um that scene so basically um this the gang that ricky parallel ricky um is involved with uh have captured mickey and they're taking him back to their base and they get back to their base and then ricky's there and he's like oh what am i doing there what am I doing here? Or whatever the line is. Um, and then they, so they tie Mickey up to interrogate him, but they don't just tie Mickey up. They strip him down to his underwear <laughs> and he is tied to the chair. And my God, Noel Clark, you work out it. I'm sorry for, I'm sorry for objectifying you, but oomph. yes. It is a weirdly like, uh, I want to say, like, uh, female gaze kind of, like, scene because, like, it's, it's like, lit by this, like, crackling fire in the background. It's very low light with, like, shadows dancing everywhere. You get, like, proper long shots of him strapped to this chair almost completely naked, and it's very, like, it's just straight up hot. Um, and especially when the concept of, like, you've got uh, alternate reality Ricky kind of, like, looming over him and inspecting him and whatnot, and there's so much, like gay queer undertone going on there and, and it's really really hot it's <laughs> basically the only word we're going to keep coming back to on this one um and again it ricky is a really interesting way of facilitating mickey's growth because 
you essentially have himself showing him that he is worthwhile of of achieving more and trying more and being more than the tin dog. I wish it didn't need to come to this for Mickey to have that realization, but I think as a sci-fi concept um, lens of of a self-actualization story, it, it is quite interesting. Mm. I, it's an interesting take what you just say about uh, the fact that he needs to learn from himself who he wants to be. Um, I do wish that this season had taken just more care to establish um, Rose and Mickey's relationship because it felt like for a long time, uh, it felt like for most of season one, at least Ricky, sorry, I keep calling him Ricky, Mickey, um, <laughs> Ricky and Rose's relationship. Whenever Mickey was present, it was all about Rose and how he felt about Rose. But this season has seen a definite shift towards the, Mickey trying to kind of emulate the doctor and Mickey trying to get the doctor's respect. And you got that scene where um, Rose is going off to find her dad. Mickey's going off to explore the parallel earth and the doctor can only follow one of them. And he chooses Rose. And it's funny because like, it's almost like he, Rose doesn't really care about Mickey in that scene. Mickey doesn't care about Rose in that scene. Um, both of them are just trying to get the doctor. Well, uh, Rose isn't trying to get anyone to follow her, but, um, Mickey's just trying to get the doctor to value him. And that's all that he wants from this season. He just wants the doctor to value him. Um, and it, it, I did, when I was watching this, I did find myself thinking it, it quite shocking that I hadn't noticed this before, that this season has definitely shifted away its attention from Rose and Mickey's relationship to this other kind of hero emulation thing, which like was a lot of season one with uh, the ninth doctor being a sort of source for inspiration for other people to rise to the challenge. And I think that they're definitely continuing that theme here with Mickey and showing how the doctor can influence other people to become better people. Um, It's just a shame that we lost Rose in the process. Um, Honestly, I don't think anybody's particularly well served by whatever they were attempting to do across the season, because I think what you just said is really good stuff in theory, I'm not sure that it's there in practice. Um, oh, I don't even is, think I like uh, it. It's just a real bummer. I don't even think I like it in theory, <laughs> to be quite honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel you. I feel you. An interesting point about that scene where they're both walking off in different directions to sort of find out what's going on in this alternate reality um, is that immediately afterwards, you transition into a scene where Rose is talking to the doctor about Mickey's dead grandmother, which means that she is aware that that's where he would be going to investigate and she still chooses not to go with him. She chooses not to voice that concern in that exact scene where the doctor's wondering who he should follow. And so it rings quite hollow, this whole idea of like, oh, the doctor's got to go with Rose so that she doesn't get too caught up in and invested in somebody who's not alive in their reality. Well, Mickey's having the exact Mm -hmm. same emotional storyline, but both the show and the characters just don't give a shit. Um, And it's, it's just sad Um, Mm. because again, he should have been the focus of this story, especially because if he had been, if you, if, if instead we'd followed Mickey, right. You do get access to more of the, um, the freedom fighter stuff. You find out more about what Cybus has actually been doing to the homeless population. Uh, You find out about the class divide through them, as opposed to these kind of like hokey fun scenes at a, uh, at a rich dinner party with, with Pete, you know? 
You're so, that's so apt as well. Yeah, like so much of the interesting elements of this episode is tied to Mickey and his story and the Pete and Jackie stuff and the Rose stuff really, you're right. The more you've said, you've convinced me basically that um, that just gets in the way of a good story. Um, it could have, like, it, it didn't even need to be that Pete was a character. It could have just been like a, like a last minute, like, ah, oh, Pete's alive in this universe and setting up the finale um, kind of thing that Rose never mm, notices. Totally. Go on. Ah, uh, but you know, you got to kill Jackie. Oh, but then we couldn't have scenes of Jackie being a bitch. You know, that's where, that's where the meat is, James. Mm. That's what we're all here to see. Um, I'm, I'm being mean, obviously, and I still quite love Camille Kajuri and her performance. Um, and I do think that, like, even if there's problems with the way that she's depicted, I still think she milks every single minute for what it's worth. Um, and I still love watching her. Um, and also we get that great joke. <laughs> I don't care what you say. The great joke where... Rose, where she's like, oh, I better give her a bath tonight. She's going to be honking. And then the dog Rose comes down the stairs. <laughs> I'm clearly liking this more than you are. Uh, I'd say so. <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I was like laughing and like, <laughs> I can't wait for you to join in on the laughing. <laughs> and you never did. Nah, I, uh, the, the Jackie stuff is just a particularly sore spot for me because, like, I obviously rode quite hard against what Father's Day did with her character as well. And it's the same feeling propping up against here, uh, propping up again here. Um, especially when you consider that, I think it's, I, I want this to really be the last time we talk about Pete because I'm, I'm tired of talking about fucking Pete Tyler. Uh, his character is established in this world as being, like, Lumix- very close sort of uh confident or or friend or whatever that he is to him like he has knowledge of the cyberman program he specifically sells uh shitty health drinks to a sick world he is deeply entrenched in this problematic late stage capitalism bullshit right but then the episode immediately is like okay but actually Jackie's the real monster for being vain. And also, Pete is secretly a spy. So don't worry, there's actually no moral ambiguity going on here. He may have been, you know, complicit, but he was leaking information the whole time. So it's fine. But, and it's just the most like limp wristed nothing of a, a, of a character study. I, the show's obsession with making Pete Tyler an angel in Rose's eyes is exhausting. Oh, super exhausting. Um, and it's interesting because like you said, all those things and all those things are facts that are presented within the, the story, but it never, ever once suggests that like Pete is a bad guy for doing those things and never makes the characters question that either. Cause you get that scene where the doctor like realizes that Pete's involved with Cybus and the only Rose's only reaction is like, Hmm, I guess we have to see my dad now. And it's not like, Oh my God, my dad is aligned with a fucking billionaire who wants to slaughter all of humanity. Like I just, and then obviously you get that line where like he reveals that he's actually a spy who's informing on cybers industries. And then Rose is like, I knew you couldn't do that. I knew you were better than that. Um, and it's just, yeah, I think what you're saying, like angel, Pete is an angel as far as the show is concerned. And Jackie is a, a screaming Harridan. And I don't like it. Hmm. No, doesn't sit right. Does does not sit right. And it, it goes again to season two's wider problem of defining Rose by the men in her life quite a bit. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. And and yeah, I guess on the topic of Rose, 
this episode doesn't really give you much to work with either. Like she has a couple of really nice moments with Mickey. Um, there's a scene where I guess like the doctor's like assigning roles to everybody before they raid the factory where the Cybermen are being made. And he forgets to give Mickey something to do. And Mickey has like a proper outburst where he's like, I'm not an idiot. Like I deserve to have a role in things to come. And during that scene, one, Noel Clark is doing a great job, but two, I also noticed Billy Piper's doing this like really subtle wordless watching him. And you can see in her face that she's realizing that he's finally like changing and growing. Um, and I just wish there had been a lot more of that because when you get to the scene where Mickey tells Rose that he's staying, you get some of the best dialogue between the two of them, maybe ever. Absolutely. The line, what is it, the line? The, um, all those years sitting there wondering what we do, we never saw this coming. Like, it, 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 it makes you imagine an entire lifetime that we never got to see. And maybe that would be worth it. But I don't think it is. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it, it, again, it all just stems from that problem of like season two's priorities are very um, un... Well, no, I would say maybe not undefined, they're too defined. Uh, by making the Doctor and Rose as much of a focus as they are, it does lose every single other thread that it's trying to work on. And so because of that, these big emotional moments, which might be, you know, really well written, really well acted, really well directed, everything is there, um, but they only work in a vacuum. Um, and that is a... That's not good writing. That's not a good sign for a, for a show. Um, I, I don't really know what else to bring up with these two episodes. I know we haven't really talked about the actual sort of minute-to-minute um, -minute plot stuff or mm. the inner workings of, of what's been going on. Uh, is there anything in particular that you want to talk about? Um, I mean, I think it would be worth discussing the final scene just a little bit more. But, but just before that, um, it, it's also interesting to note, and again, two hearts, two queer men uh, doing the show, we do want to talk about moments of queerness when they're there or when they're not there um and i think this episode actually um but does a cardinal sin by erasing an entire queer relationship from it um because there's a deleted scene at the very end which reveals that um i think his name's jake uh the other freedom fighter alongside ricky um is um was in a relationship with ricky um, and, you know, calls him his boyfriend. And that line is cut. And by so doing, it erases it entirely from the episodes because it's also not present at all in the story, apart from like one outburst when Ricky's died and Jack's, and Jake's like, you're nothing like him. But without that line qualifying what that outburst is about, it's just a, it, it's just a friend who's died and another friend who's upset at that. Um, I think, yeah. What do you think? Uh, yeah, it's um, yes. And look, it is very refreshing to finally have something queer to talk about on this show. Um, but yeah, this is less than ideal. Um, it's interesting that you said that, you know, it kind of removes it entirely from the episode because uh, a couple of weeks back when I first watched this for the first time in, you know, as an adult, um, I remember saying to you, oh, it really seemed like he cared about him the way that a partner would, not the way that a friend would. Um, and that was before I knew about the deleted scene or the original intention of that character. And so I do think that there is definitely a good amount of subtext you can read into with Jake's performance. Um, but again, 
and this is a, a sort of a recurring problem with queer representation is that like subtext is not the same thing as representation and especially coming from a queer showrunner it is just so disappointing to have um a really I mean, I'm not going to say a well-fleshed-out version of, of queer representation, but at least something uh, to have them actively remove that. And it is like 15 seconds that they cut out. It is specifically the line, I'll never have another boyfriend like him, that they cut out, which is definitely a clumsy line. It's not good writing, but it does make it explicit that, hey, Ricky was gay with Jake and they were in a relationship. I think if you're going to keep that line, you probably should have actually stuck to your convictions a little bit and, and shown them in a relationship, uh, have them have a moment together where it, uh, it does make it obvious that, hey, I'm in love with you, you're in love with me, we're about to go to war with the Cybermen, maybe we can have 20 seconds quietly in the back of the van where they, you know, fucking hold hands or something. Like, literally anything would be better than what they ended up doing with the story, which is that kind of spineless, nothing queer representation. Um, and it's frustrating because again, and look, it isn't fair necessarily to hold the fact that Russell T Davies is a gay man against him in this regard. He is operating within a system that was still in 2006, um, against social pressures, against his own, um, sort of understanding of queer representation, what he's comfortable with allowing on his show. Like, I'm not trying to place an expectation on him because he's gay, but there is invariably a degree of, um, uh, of disappointment that comes with the fact that this was a show helmed by a gay man that actively removed gay representation. Mm. It it may be, I mean, this is also the same showrunner that gave us Captain Jack. So like, I don't think it's fair to say that he's like necessarily afraid of showing um, queer characters on screen. Um, but maybe it's more a case that um, the the relationship, maybe it was a case that they got to that line at the end and then realized that they hadn't really done enough to justify that line being there. So deleted it. I mean, that's a very generous reading, but maybe it, that could be part of the reason why it was removed because without it, it you're right. It's still a spineless, nothing of a representation moment. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's like we said when we actually discussed Jack, it was that whole, like, yeah, this is technically queer representation, but the fact that it's, like, established that, like, he'll fuck anything, again, it, it's it's spineless, you know? It's mm. not actually doing the work to make it a proper queer character. And what sings so much about these two is that they, they were obviously explicitly written as two men in love. Um, and so to, to not show that... And again, it's another byproduct of the fact that, like, this episode is so concerned with all of the Rose stuff and the Pete stuff and all those kind of like very mechanical plot stuff they need to set up for the finale that you don't get time dedicated to the actual characters of this story. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think, I don't think Russell T Davies is afraid to show gay characters. I'm definitely not casting a dispersion on him, um, but it is still not ideal. No, it's not. Unfortunately, but no, we don't end the story with that. Instead, we end it with the scene of, of Mickey leaving the TARDIS. Um, is it a good moment? What do you think? I think Mickey actively choosing to leave is good for him in, in, in most ways. Um, I uh, we, we haven't really talked about, like, I don't know, I feel like this... this 
let's get a little bit meta here, folks. I feel like this review has been interesting because, like, it's been a lot about, like, the ideas of the episode as opposed to the actual mechanics of it. And so when I think about that ending, I think about the fact that we dedicated a fair amount of time of our... Um, uh, what is it, Parting of the Ways episode to discussing the concept that episode brings up of the Doctor leaving a crater behind when he goes and sort of creating a problem and then running away from it. Um, and this episode does exactly that same thing again. Like, there is Cybermen all over the globe that are about to be a problem and the Doctor's like, Mickey, you got this, I'm out of here. And so that feels underbaked and, and kind of annoying. And so that tinges what actually does get to happen in this finale, which again should have been entirely focused on Mickey, um, or rather in this final act. Um, and so I like the fact that Mickey leaves the TARDIS. Uh, I like the fact that he and um, Jake have that nice moment in the van where he's like, hey, I've always wanted to go to Paris. Fuck it, I'm going to go to Paris. Like, it's a new Mickey. You know what I mean? Mm. Um so that's really good. I, I'm, I'm satisfied with that element of it. And despite all of my complaints with the Rose stuff in this episode, um, this ending, and I know you disagree with, well, don't disagree no. with me on this, but I know that we, we differ on this one a little bit. Um, this ending also gives me perhaps my favorite Rose and Jackie moment. Um, they, they leave the alternate reality. They go back to, to earth um, and they go and visit Jackie straight away because in this alternate reality, uh, Jackie gets turned into a Cyberman and Rose is unable to stop that from happening. And even though she's not a very nice Jackie, it's still her mother. Mm. And so they get back to earth and they meet up with the real Jackie again. And she's uh, Rose gets out of the TARDIS immediately starts like breaking down crying and just hugs her mom and doesn't really like, she says like, Oh, you're alive. And then hugs her mom and just cannot even get any words out. She's just crying and holding her mother at that point. Um, and Jackie just looks at the doctor behind Rose and she's like, you know, obviously confused. She's like, where did you go? And the doctor just leans against the TARDIS and goes far away. That was far away. And it's such incredible who hmm. storytelling because it's the kind of beat that you can only really get from a show that dabbles in things like timelines and alternate realities and whatnot. Hmm. Um, and that kind of appreciation of home is something that I think we've both wanted to see in Rose a fair bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. It just, that, that moment in particular really resonates with me. I think that moment also, uh, I, I agree with you. Um, I think that moment also lends a little bit of credence to my Rose has abandonment issues theory. Um, because again, here, um, I don't know the way she just like walks towards the TARDIS after like Mickey's told her that she's leaving. She looks so dejected and like depressed and like Mickey's leaving her. And so she goes to the, to her mom, just like to have something, just something that she can hold on to. Um, it's there maybe. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm making a claim. It's there. <laughs> Nah, I get it. I get it. There's roses. She's like an onion. She's got she's got some layers. Nah, I guess that's kind of about it. There are a yeah. lot of like really good individual moments across this two-parter that I think we can fire off quickly to sort of wrap things up on. Um, Mrs. Price is the kind of like middle-aged badass hacker woman that ends up hanging out with the Doctor for a little while. Mm. Uh, I really enjoy that woman's performance and that whole characterization is just, mwah, it's delicious. We We haven't even talked about Mickey's gran, I've just realised. This, I mean, yes, she is in one scene. Really good scene, isn't it? The it's it's so as we said before, Mickey in this parallel universe goes to see his grand because in this universe she's alive, and it's, there's a really good moment when they're talking on the doorstep and he can see 
the carpet on the stairs is ripped and it's a really good performance from Noel Clark, but just the look on his face when he's just like, Oh, I have a chance to like stop this thing happening that I wasn't able to do in the, in my universe. I have a chance to redo my life over again. Um, I don't necessarily like, like that idea for characters. Like I like the idea they have to sit with their consequences and, and make good on the reality they have, but it's also, it's a really nice moment. It's a really nice scene. And I, I don't know who that actress is who plays his grand, but I think she's actually quite good. Uh, you get this immediate sense. They have this like long relationship that I did not see coming. Mm, totally. Totally agreed. That, that is a, a really lovely scene. I, I think every scene with Mickey in this is genuinely quite good. Oh, actually speaking of which, um, the scene where Ricky dies. Uh, so Mickey and Ricky are on the run from some Cybermen together and they're both trying to climb over this, um, uh, fence and Mickey gets over first and he's like, come on, come on. You gotta hurry up. Gotta hurry up. Cause they're right behind him. And before Ricky can climb over, um, he is electrocuted by the Cybermen and dies in front of, um, Mickey. And there's no dramatic music. There's no like massive screaming. It's just this silent beat that plays out with Mickey on one side of this chain link fence and a whole army of Cybermen on the other side. They just stare at each other silently, Mickey looking down at his alternate reality dead body. And he just silently backs away, trips over a little bit and then just runs. And it's so imposing and and creepy. And again, like to the Cybermen, um, uh, designs credit because they are so humanless and and cold in this iteration um it just it's a beautiful little horror moment and it it does spark quite a transformation in mickey and i just really wanted to give a shout out to that particular scene mm. i agree that is a great it's a great moment and there's lots of and there's that moment and there's also the moment when um they pete and rose are in the cyber factory and jackie as a cyberman approaches them and says you know um, I was once Jacqueline Tyler and now I am a Cyberman. And and then when she walks away, Pete and Jack, uh, Rose are both like, which one was her? Which one was Jackie? Which one did she go? And that really hammers home that idea that the Cybermen are just like faceless and you will become faceless. It's a really good uh, scene. Um, and I mm. maybe just like my last tiny point before we wrap up is the Cyberman theme that they compose Iconic. I don't care what you say. It's better than anything they've written for the Daleks. It's, I love it. I love it. You hear it and you instantly think Cybermen. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think Gold's work here is is pretty good for the most part. Um, I have a little point of contention. No! Um, I believe that... <laughs> There is a audio cue that this episode, these two episodes use quite frequently. It's this kind of like creepy little uh, noise. I'll play it here. And that is to me very obviously a direct rip on a creepy audio cue that the Resident Evil film used a few years prior. And um, look, I'm just saying, um, Murray Gold, hack. <laughs> I hate this. I do not want this. Um, but look, that that aside, uh, yeah, I, th- I think we're pretty much done here. Um, what are you going to grade uh, these two episodes? <laughs> Um, yeah, I think for me, it's a B minus for Rise of the Cybermen and a C plus for Age of Steel. 
Uh, I really like the setup, even if Pete and Jackie do get in the way. Um, and I really, I, I, one thing I didn't mention is I just, I think the scene after Rose has been berated by her mum, uh, and then the lights flash up on Rose's face and the marching starts and the music kicks in all like, it's like, it's like a 10 or 20 second sequence, but I really, really love the, like the building threat in that moment. This is obviously a muddled episode with muddled writing and ideas. I think stylistically though, it's really, really good and I do enjoy watching them. So yeah. What about you? Hmm. I'm actually, I'm, I'm going to flip your script. I am going to give um, Rise of the Cybermen a C minus uh, and I'm going to give Age of Steel a B minus. Um, I think that the problems in the setup are the cause of all the problems going forward in this two-parter. Um, and I think there are fundamental mistakes made in that first episode that completely tank a lot of the good stuff. Um, but there is a lot more in age of steel that I, I appreciate and that I vibe with. It's those smaller character moments. Um, the writing is much better in age of steel. It's still not amazing. Um, it's still very much a, a very kind of like, uh, I'm not going to say lowbrow, but it's, it's not particularly concerned with being the story that I think it could be. Um, so yeah, uh, not, not an amazing week of Doctor Who, but a serviceable one. Hmm. Is it a vibe? It is most definitely not a vibe. Uh, <laughs> what is a vibe though? is this podcast and as always we want to thank you folks for listening to us uh if you could leave us a review on itunes stitcher uh, uh amazon i don't know wherever it is that you're listening to this if you have the ability to give us a five-star rating that would be fantastic because it helps us grow and it makes us feel good about ourselves uh you can reach out to us with your thoughts uh feelings questions if you want to have the red on the show at two hearts podcast at gmail.com that's to the word two uh we are also on facebook instagram and twitter at two hearts pod the number two and i have been cj and this is exciting you can find me on twitter and instagram at theatricalum i've got a new handle and i'll spell that one for you it's t-h-e-a-t-r I C A double L U M, and it's a funny pun on my name because my name is Callum and I'm theatrical. I uh, look good for him, good for her. Um, <laughs> I've been James. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram as well, actually, at OMG More James. And we will see you, beautiful people, in two weeks' time for. Oh, actually, that is something that we do need to discuss. We are going to be changing it up a little bit for the rest of season two because um, these episodes are a mess moving forward. So, see, so did you want to just run, run our lovely fans through how we're going to be handling this? <laughs> That's so mean, but okay. Um, <laughs> look, the, no. So we we've been we've watched the rest of the season. Um, we're just having a look at our upcoming schedule for how we're going to tackle the rest of season two. And um, we I quite like Idiot's Lantern, but I think we both feel like we don't have enough to really talk about to justify a whole episode for that one. Or fear her. Um, the only problem is, of course, is that they aren't broadcast side by side. So what we are going to be doing is. For the rest of season two, our upcoming schedule will be next week. We'll tackle the amazing two-parter, which is the impossible planet and Satan pit. Then we will do love and monsters, which I think is an episode well worth its own discussion. Then we'll do love and monsters. Sorry. Then we'll do um, idiots lantern and fear her together as a two-parter. And then we'll wrap up 
with the finale Army of Ghosts and Doomsday. Um, so don't be shocked when we've missed a whole episode next week. We know what we're doing. We certainly do. We, we certainly do. And yeah, we've got a big old slate of two-parters now lined up for you folks. It's going to be meaty. It's going to be great. It's going to be, I, I can't actually promise it'll be queer. I don't think it will be, but it will be fun nonetheless. Um, I'm sure and that's really about it. So sure uh, we'll find some men to objectify next week and then we'll make it queer. It'll be fine. I mean, that giant devil is pretty dang hot, so. <laughs> there we go. We did it. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> we made it queer, Russell. Take notes. Um, yeah, as always, thank you so much for hanging out. We, we love you all. Uh, be safe, be kind to each other, and we will see you in two weeks' time. Peace. Otherwise known as Monday London. London where he's alive. Rose, don't look at it. Don't look at it. That's not your pa. I'm Jackie. I'm a bitch. Bitch, bitch, Jackie. <laughs> Women with paws are bad. <laughs> oh, no, I'm a Cyberman because I have no emotions. Skin of metal. <laughs> and a body that'll never age. Now will you do that from beyond the grave? <laughs> Fuck me. <laughs> okay. <clears throat>